The following contains material depicting childhood sexual abuse and adult content. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Listen at your own discretion. Marilyn Behind the Icon A dramatic series on the life of Marilyn Monroe. Our story continues with Episode 7, The White Piano. Early 1953, Marilyn and her drama coach, Natasha Lites, are attending an auction together. Isn't this exciting? I've never bought anything at an auction. I'm determined to win the hammer bit for the piano. I have no doubt you will. I know you explained it, Natasha, but I want to watch first. Uh, observe what people do. Uh, this picture of the piano in the auction catalog looks better than it did in the showroom. Black paint looks pretty scratched and worn from what must have happened to it long after you played it as a child. You said you were around seven years old? Yes. When my mother was institutionalized, everything in our home had to be liquidated. There were still $200 she owed in payments on it. So Anna Lauer, uh, you remember I told you about her before. Uh, my guardian, Grace's relative. Well, she took the piano and finished the payments. But Aunt Anna tried to keep it for me as an heirloom. But, uh, well, she had to move to a smaller place and didn't have enough room to hold on to it. So like a good detective, you tracked it to the auction house. Oh, it certainly took some doing. And now we go to Lot 11. I think it's coming up soon, Mark. Let's move right up front. There's some open seats. Together with a matching bench. Opening bid is $1,000. Do I hear $1,500? $1,500 from the young lady in front. $1,600. $1,600 to my right. Thank you. $1,700? $1,700. The young lady again. This piano reportedly was once owned by actor Frederick March. $1,800. Bid is $1,800. $1,800 going once. $1,900 again to my right. 2,000, again to the fourth row. Going to 2,500. <coughs> 2,500 to the lady in front. $2,500, 2,500, last call. Any more bids? Sold to the young lady in front for $2,500. I got it, Natasha. Well done, dear. It's all mine again. By the fall of 1933, Norma Jean was seven years old and living with her mother in the house with the piano on Arbol Street in Hollywood. She was enrolled in second grade in Selma Avenue School and coped with the tragedies in her life through her imagination and creativity by escaping into the fantasy world of motion pictures. Yet just as Norma Jean began to experience some small happiness, events in her life were about to change. And everything she knew, her home, her family, 
and even her own psyche were about to be shattered. In October of 1933, Norma Jean's mother Gladys received the belated news from a cousin that her grandfather, Tilford Hogan, hanged himself at age 82 in Lynn County, Missouri. This news of her grandfather's suicide shortly after the tragic demise of her son and the responsibilities of raising a daughter without parental support took their toll on Gladys. These enormous losses, combined with multiple stressors, strained her internal resources and taxed her coping skills. Gladys began experiencing auditory hallucinations of her deceased son's voice calling her and visual hallucinations of her deceased grandfather standing in the house. Gladys' psychiatric stability continued to unravel into 1934. It's impossible to know the extent of the daily horror Norma Jean witnessed during the emergence of her mother's psychotic episodes, or its impact on the child's later life. Other children in the neighborhood avoided Norma Jean. Marilyn later recounted that they would point to her and say things like, yeah, she's just like her mother, Crazy, stay away from her. <laughs> Shunned by the neighborhood children, Norma Jean withdrew even further into her lonely fantasy world of imagination to cope with her mother's increasing psychotic episodes and hallucinations. I set up a stand on the sidewalk and played store, pretending the passing adults were customers. I offered them empty whiskey bottles and packs of cigarettes that had been discarded after the British tenants held parties. I even imagined the bottles as a doll family, made clothing for them with scraps of fabric and gave them names. Ida Bollinger would have been revolted by my existence in Arbol Street. Young Norma Jean's increasingly sad and tragic circumstances were about to take an extremely dark and terrible turn for the worse. Marilyn Monroe was the first public figure to bravely disclose childhood sexual abuse to the media. During the 1950s, childhood sexual abuse was often denied or minimized. The topic was taboo in American society. Marilyn's memory of her childhood trauma is documented in her autobiography, My Story. Based upon collaboration with ghostwriter Ben Heck, and serialized in the press in 1954. She recalled having been eight when the sexual abuse began. In the home on Arbol Street, Gladys had rented out a room to a British couple and their adult daughter. 
the man in this family of renters was a well-respected, stern-looking man whom Norma Jean called Mr. Kimmel. When I passed the open door of his room, Mr. Kimmel invited me in. I thought he was going to ask me to run an errand. But he closed the door and turned the key in the lock and smiled. Now you can't get out. He said it in a way that sounded as if we were playing a game. I froze and stared at him. But I didn't dare yell. But I tried to get away. The tenant overpowered Norma Jean with his strength while whispering an order for her to be a good girl during the molestation. After the assault, the man unlocked the door. I later went to the woman who was taking care of me, uh, whom I called Aunt, and I told her what Mr. Kimmel had done to me. Don't you dare say anything against Mr. Kimmel! Shame on you for complaining about people. Mr. Kimmel is a fine man. She slapped my face. Later, Mr. Kimmel came up to me and handed me a nickel. Go buy yourself some ice cream, he said. I cried in bed that night. I wanted to die. Marilyn's account of the abuse contains her caregiver's egregious disbelief and lack of protection. It also contains the offender buying her compliance and silence. When a caregiver denies a child's trauma, the child is forced to act as if it did not occur, and she learns she cannot trust the caregiver, and the abuse is permitted to continue. The psychological damage of this response is devastating. Not only is the caregiver in denial of the abuse, but she physically punishes and blames the child victim. Also, the offender is not held accountable. It's possible the caregiver's dependence on the tenant's rent to supplement her income was the priority over Norma Jean. Norma Jean was sacrificed. I remember being taken to a religious revival meeting in a tent soon after Mr. Kimmel had molested me. The preacher called on the sinners to approach the altar for repentance. I fell to my knees and began to tell him about Mr. Kimmel and how he had molested me in his room. But everyone crowded around and no one could hear what I was saying. But then I looked back and saw Mr. Kimmel standing among the non-sinners 
praying loudly and devoutly for God to forgive the sins of others. This memory illustrates Marilyn's childhood narrative of shame and adult hypocrisy. She bravely wrote in her journal two decades later as a survivor standing up to her perpetrator and claiming control. In the entry, she also identifies having strong sexual feelings since the time of her abuse. I had very strong sexual feelings since I was a small child. I think of all the things I felt then. As a child with less than adequate attachments to adults, the abuse may have occurred within the context of what she, as a child, may have perceived as adult attention, closeness, intimacy, or what she may have perceived as love. Norma Jean's offender targeted her as the vulnerable child of an unstable single mother. The offender robbed Norma Jean of the choice of her own sexual partner at a later age when sexual contact is appropriate. And he robbed Norma Jean of her childhood. Norma Jean's overwhelming trauma of sexual abuse was about to be compounded by yet another trauma. Her mother's terrifying psychotic episode that would leave her institutionalized for many years. I was having breakfast in the kitchen with the British couple, and there was a terrible noise on the stairs. It was the most frightening noise I had ever heard. Uh, banging noises that wouldn't stop. Norma Jean? Stay here in the kitchen with us. Go out there, dear, and control her. Stop the commotion. Somebody's coming down those steps to kill me! I've called for the police and an ambulance. Are they coming to help my mother? Norma Jean, no. Please, I want to see her. I want to be with her. I don't think you should see her in this state, Norma Jean. Mama! Please, dear, stay here with the child. I'll go back out there. No, 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 Norma Jean. Stay here with me. Mama! During Gladys' psychotic crisis, she was experiencing auditory and visual hallucinations. She believed she was being attacked by someone who had entered the house. Gladys was first taken to Santa Monica Rest Home before transferring to Los Angeles General Hospital. Her illness was characterized by preoccupation with religion, announced a psychiatric evaluation report, and chronic episodes of serious depression and agitation. Psychiatrists diagnosed Gladys with schizophrenia, paranoid type. Schizophrenia is mistakenly believed to be a split or multiple personality. However, this chronic brain disorder is characterized by delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, lack of emotion, and grossly impaired social functioning. Typically, people with paranoid schizophrenia hear hallucinations of voices, 
and are suspicious of others whom they believe are persecuting them. Before the advent of antipsychotic drugs in the 1950s, the prognosis for those with the disorder was poor. The stressors of bereavement, single parenting, and increased responsibilities exacerbated Gladys's genetically predisposed mental illness. Family history is a strong risk factor for both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and both disorders tend to aggregate in families, as they did in Gladys's family. These conditions can skip generations or manifest as less or more severe in subsequent generations. Soon everything disappeared from my mother's home. The furniture, her beds, the curtains, and then the baby grand piano. declared legally incompetent in January 1935 and transferred to the Norwalk State Hospital where my grandmother had died. The British couple served as my caregivers for nearly a year. They kept me as long as there was money. Money from my mother's savings and from an insurance policy she had. But eventually, Grace had to pay the couple to take care of me. In the mid-1950s, Marilyn wrote a revealing poem about this period of her childhood, attempting to resolve and work through her emotional state of this era. I left my home of green rough wood a blue velvet couch. I dream till now. A shiny dark bush just left of the door. Down the walk, clickety-clack, as my doll in her carriage went over the cracks. We'll go far away, don't you cry, my doll. Don't you cry. I hold you and rock you to sleep.
feel life is coming closer. And all I want is to die. Some sources reveal Grace, Gladys's best friend, was aware of the British couple's mistreatment of Norma Jean, but the extent of her awareness and the extent of the mistreatment are unclear. According to Bernice Miracle, Marilyn's half-sister, Grace was aware that the British couple were inappropriate caregivers. Bernice later wrote, They stayed until Grace found out they were treating Norma Jean unkindly, and we got rid of them. The words treating unkindly may have been euphemisms for sexual abuse, physical abuse, or neglect. Come with me, Norma Jean. I'm bringing you to a lovely couple, Harvey and Ellie Giffins. They're from New Orleans, and they live near Arbel Street. The placement with the Giffins ended when the couple returned to Louisiana. Norma Jean was then placed in the household of Reginald Carroll, a sound engineer at RCA and formerly Gladys's co-worker at Consolidated. He was married with three children. Norma Jean then landed with another couple on East Palmer Street in Compton. The husband, Brian Atchison, was Grace's brother, who made furniture polish, and his wife Lottie, who peddled the product to hardware stores throughout Los Angeles County. Norma Jean rode along in the car with her new foster mother and learned the geography of the area and frequently experienced car sickness. Before she could adjust to this new placement, Norma Jean was whisked away once again. Sometimes, uh, Grace would let me stay at her apartment. I'd lay in her bed pretending to sleep. I'd hear her talking to friends, like almost an argument. You can't take on the responsibility of Gladys's child. Let the state take over. She'll become more of responsibility as she grows older. Listen to us, Grace. Her grandmother and grandfather died in institutions. Her great-grandfather hung himself. Her uncle took off. Now, her mother is in an institution and may never get out. It's in her family. She'll turn out to be a mental case. No, I won't accept that. You don't know her. I held her when she was born. She's a special little girl. And Gladys is my dearest friend, like a sister to me. This child deserves a chance. She needs someone to look out for her. She's got nobody, nobody but me. Grace was working as a film librarian at the studio where my mother had worked. She was the first person to hug me or pat my head or my shoulder. I was thrilled when her gentle, safe hand touched me. Well, then she lost her job and was living on less than a dollar a week for food. We live on stale bread and milk. Grace would take me to the Helms Bakery on Venice Boulevard where we'd stand in line. 
During the Great Depression, you could buy a sack of old bread for a quarter. Sometimes she'd skimped on the bread and took me to the beauty parlor to curl my hair like Shirley Temple. <laughs> As if that would prevent me from experiencing the downtrodden life she was living. Why she'd look at me and tell me that I would grow up and become a beautiful woman. August 1945, the Blue Book Modeling Agency at the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Avenue in Los Angeles. My mother and I offer only young women who show promise the opportunity to purchase a portrait in our agency's catalog for prospective modeling work. We target career girls and, and college girls interested in fashion modeling. I'm interested in that, Miss Snively. My husband is away in the Merchant Marine, and modeling would help supplement our income. Your husband is away? Yes, in the South Pacific. I'm very protective of my models. My girls, as a model, you'll be going on modeling assignments. You'll be going on assignments with male photographers. I won't accompany you. You'll be going off on your own. Some photographers have assistants and stylists working with them, but on occasion, you may find yourself in a studio or on location alone with a photographer. You will need to establish firm boundaries, Norma Jean. Do you hear what I'm saying? I think so, Miss Nively. A strong woman in my life, my guardian's aunt, Anna Lauer, she had been like me when she was young. She also didn't have a father to protect her. When I lived with her growing up, she used to tell me that when I go out into the world, I must wear my armor. Armor? Yes, armor, to protect myself against people who ridicule me or try to hurt me in some way. I think it might be the same as establishing firm boundaries. I'm glad she gave you that instruction, Norma Jean. You be sure to put on the armor your Aunt Anna advised you to wear when you go out on a modeling assignment, or find yourself alone with a photographer, or other men. Recovery from trauma includes finding one's voice amid negative views of oneself and the world. As a child surviving physical and sexual abuse, Norma Jean did not have a voice. Her voice was silenced by those who failed to protect her, those who abused her, and those who disbelieved her. But in adulthood, Norma Jean found a voice, a strong voice. Hey, Marilyn, I'm sorry. I really wasn't any help in trying to persuade Harry Cohn to reconsider dropping you from Columbia. Oh, please don't apologize. You pled my case. Well, you were a champion. 
I guess it's really just a matter of supply and demand. <laughs> you know that's not true. Your singing and dancing got great reviews. You shined up there on the screen. Like I said, you've got the potential to be a star. Why, thank you, friend. Well, perhaps I shouldn't have gone with you to talk to Mr. Cohen. Maybe I should have talked to him myself, alone. No, no, Marilyn, you can't do that. He's the king of the casting couch. That's why they call him King Cohen or White Fang. People stand in line to hate him. You can't ask him to renew your contract and be alone with him. Great. You worry about me, don't you? But I can face him. I'll just have to wear my armor. Your armor? Yes. It's something I learned from Aunt Anna. Yeah, well, anyway, Marilyn, being alone with him won't be safe. Why survived worse? I can stand up for myself and plead my own case. I can protect myself from him. All right, well, just promise me you'll be careful, baby. Well, I promise. Good afternoon. I'm Marilyn Monroe. Mr. Cohen summoned me. <sighs> Sir, Miss Monroe has arrived. <sighs> Send her in. You may go in, Miss Monroe. Thank you. Good afternoon. Come in, Marilyn. And close the door all the way. Thank you for inviting me to discuss your reconsideration of extending my contract. I'm grateful for my first starring role at Columbia. You were here I... a few days ago with uh, Fred Carger to persuade me to extend your contract. Yes. Mr. Carger is my advocate as well as my... Protector? Protector, sir? Yes, yes. You came to negotiate your contract with a protector, Marilyn. Okay. You don't need a middleman to negotiate terms with me. Marilyn, you're standing all the way over there. Come over here. I want to show you something. May I see it from here? I have very good eyesight. I want you to take a close look at this photo on my credenza. Let me see. Why, it's your boat. It's my yacht. Oh, it's a magnificent yacht. Looks like a floating palace. So you want to keep working at Columbia. I was hoping I could. Ladies of the Chorus will be released in December. I hope you saw the rushes and are pleased with my performance. Uh, your studio coach, Natasha Lytus, says you've done a good job. Carga says your singing is swell. Thank you, Mr. Cohn. You might have heard some people call me King Cohn. <laughs> And White Fang? Oh, I never heard. Take a look at what's on my shelves. They look like perfume bottles. They are ladies' perfume bottles. 
And uh, look what's in this drawer. Mm. Ladies' stockings? These are trinkets. Uh, trinkets? Just think of them as trinkets or payment uh, for favors. But Marilyn, I think you're more interested in the extension of your contract as a payment for favors. I was hoping you believed in my talent. My acting and singing in your picture. Marilyn, will you come along with me on my yacht? I'm not inviting anyone else but you. I'd love to join you and your wife on the yacht, Mr. Carter. Leave my wife out of this and you can drop the virgin act, baby. You're nothing more than just another dame to me. I'd prefer to negotiate terms based on my talent, not my body, Mr. Cohn. Good afternoon. Sweetheart, you'll never work at Columbia again. Marilyn knew she had worked too hard to allow even a studio head to throw her off her determined plan to establish an acting career in Hollywood. She was grateful to Cohn for the role but now realized the game he played with other young starlets desperate to move up. She had no intention of playing along, as she knew she had other options. This incident motivated Marilyn to later deliver a sarcastic message to Harry Cohn when she achieved superstardom in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She mailed the studio mogul an autographed portrait inscribed. To my great benefactor, Harry Cohn. Grandmother and grandfather died in institutions. 
Now, her mother is in an institution and they never get out. This child deserves a chance. She's got nobody. She'll turn out to be a mental case. It's in her family. For the facts behind the scenes portrayed in this episode, be sure to listen to our companion podcast, Norma Jean, Discovering Truths, a discussion around the historical events drawn from Marilyn's life, which we are using to create the dramatic narrative in every episode. For the complete experience of our series, visit our website at BehindTheIcon.com where you can listen to every episode and also follow the story through historical photographs, videos, and exclusive anecdotes. You can subscribe on the website to join our community and get special updates about the series. On Facebook, search Marilyn Behind the Icon and stay connected to our social posts. Subscribe to the audio series of Marilyn Behind the Icon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you're listening now. We'd love for you to give us a review or rating if you're enjoying what you're hearing. You can also support the show and the production by checking out the offers from the advertisers and sponsors you hear in the show or find on our website. This dramatic audio series is based on the two-volume biography by author Gary Vitaco Robles titled Icon, The Life, Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe.